Firstly, thanks very much for coming along, for giving up part of your Sunday. Hope you all enjoyed the extra hour in bed. Uh, we've got quite a lot to get through. What is a, a very good book, actually, in the local Waterstones, it describes it as a fascinating insight into the world of politics and intrigue. More of that later. My name is Jerry Foley. I'm the political correspondent for Tyne Tees and Border Television. My job is basically to introduce Jack, who's going to read a few extracts from the book, some of the more personal stuff, for about 10 minutes or so. Then I'm going to interview him for a bit. And then we're going to throw it open uh, to you to try and get through as many questions as we can. Can I start by just uh, saying thank you to the sponsors, as always, the Banks Group, for their help, and indeed for all the sponsors throughout the Durham Book Festival, which has helped to ensure such a high caliber of guests and, of course, hosts. Um, okay, he's the last man standing, but he's actually going to sit for this for some reason. It's, it's Jack Straw. Uh, as Jerry has said, thank you very much to everybody for uh, coming uh, today. I hope you've, you've, you feel your journey has not been wasted uh, at the end of it. Um, I'm just going to read a, 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 f a few uh, extracts uh, from the book, and I'll keep an eye on the time, um, which are about, about, if you like, the more personal uh, side of it. Uh, this first one is actually from the first couple of pages. My mother has just married your father, Reg announced. It was late April 1967, three weeks to the final examinations of my law degree at Leeds University. I'd had a great time. It was the 1960s. But as my day of judgment approached, I was temporarily regretting that I'd spent too much time on student politics, on trying to impress women, and not enough on my studies. The Parkinson Building of the university is the most imposing building on the whole campus and sits at the top of a hill half a mile north of the city centre. For me, it was not only imposing, but intimidating. Its dominant presence, a constant reproach that I should have spent my time there in its Brotherton Library, rather than 100 yards away in the Student Union building. As I climbed the stone steps to the front entrance, my mind was on the finer points of the law of contract when I saw Reg Grattan approach. Reg had been editor of the Union News, the well-produced and popular student newspaper. And as a student politician, anxious for good coverage, I knew him, although he was not a close friend. Hi, Jack, he greeted me. I mumbled a good morning in reply, and we passed. I was some paces towards the door of the library itself when I heard a tentative, then an imperative. Jack! Jack! I turned and walked back to Reg, who was now nervously shifting from foot to foot. Jack, uh, there's something I've been meaning to tell you. What's that, Reg? I asked, thinking he might be about to impart some inner detail of the running of Union News or gossip about some student politician adversary. There's something I've got to tell you. Well, tell me, please. Then there was a long pause, after which he said that his mother had just married my father. My parents had parted when I was 10. I was now 20. I had not heard or seen of my father in the intervening decade, except via reports from my mother complaining about the late arrival of the required maintenance payments. Well, I said, we'd better go and have a coffee. In the cafe across the road from the library, the story unfolded. Reg had been sending home copies of the Union News whose proud mother 
had been showing them to her husband. He'd noticed reports about a jack straw and gradually worked out that this young man was his son. Through Reg, I remade contact with my father. So did my four siblings. And happily, we were all reconciled by the time of his death. Uh, as this uh, book explains, I was first married in uh, 1968, and then um, my first wife and I parted, and I met my uh, second wife, Alice, who's uh, here in the audience, to whom I've been married ever since. Um, but as I was becoming the candidate for Blackburn, we were, quotes living over the brush, uh, and uh, Alice was told in our uncertain terms by the uh, local Labour Party elders uh, that she should not come near uh, the constituency for my selection conference for uh, fear that this would be taken as a mark against me. This is uh, an Alice that was, uh, as she remained for until six years ago, uh, in the senior civil service as this uh, unfolds. After my divorce from Anthea came through in August 1978, Alice and I fixed our wedding for early November to ensure that we would be respectably married for the forthcoming general election. In the regulations constraining the political activities of civil servants, Alice was in the restricted category. If I won Blackburn, but Labour lost the election, she'd be working for Conservative ministers. So what were the do's and don'ts for her as my spouse? Alice wrote to her director of establishments, or head of human resources, as he'd now been known, Brown McGuinness, a bachelor who always read a book in the lift to avoid any risk of conversation, <laughs> and had a large print of Salvador Dali crucifix above his desk. His list of don'ts covered a page. Alice could not do walkabouts or canvas with me, and she could not be visibly associated with my views on anything she might deal with in her own job. She was at the Department of Health at the time. If, for example, I proposed the nationalization of general practitioners, and Alice was sitting near me with a happy smile, we should certainly have to find you another seat. She could, however, says this letter, still on our bathroom wall, do a little private entertaining, and those things which were, quotes, entirely consistent with your wifely duties. <laughs> I uh, got into the House of Commons in uh, 1979, and uh, in uh, October 1980, I was lucky enough to be appointed to the front bench as a junior treasury spokesman, with Peter Shaw as the shadow chancellor, a great man called Bob Sheldon as the chief secretary, Robin Cook uh, as one of the other two junior front benchers, and me. Being a member of Labour's Treasury team was great, and it allowed me to put my anorak tendencies to good use. Bob Sheldon and Robin Cook gave me the mind-numbing parts of the finance bills. For example, the dense texts of a new scheme for the taxation of discretionary trusts were discussed in committee in the small hours of the morning with everyone, apart from the chairman, the clerk, the chief secretary to the Treasury, Peter Rees, and me, fast asleep. Peter and I droned on for hours. Even in those halcyon days of the reporting of Parliament, the Lancashire Telegraph and every other paper omitted to cover this debate. <laughs> Had my constituents ever discovered what I did at night, 
they'd had, have had even more serious doubts about my mental health. But I was getting a bit cocky until Labour's Deputy Chief Whip, Walter Harrison, took me in hand. Walter had been a foreman electrician before becoming MP for Wakefield. He was one of the unsung heroes of the 1974-79 Labour government, helping it to survive with no majority and win vote after vote until the last fateful division. Stocky, as broad as he was tall, Walter was not a man to pick an argument with. Unwisely, I did. Walter stopped me in the corridor outside the opposition whip's office and told me that the tactics I was using in my part of the finance bill had to be changed. I thought he was wrong and explained in earnest detail why. He repeated his instructions. I repeated my contrary case, jabbering on. He fixed me with both eyes, and as he did so, I felt a pain between my legs, which I'd not experienced since I was on the school rugby field. His grip tightened. I rose on tiptoes as he pushed up as well. My mouth came open. Only a little screech came out. Now, lad, have you got the point, or do you want some more? <laughs> yes, I whimpered in reply. Uh, Walter released his grip. I did as I'd been told. And the, the last e extract uh, is about life uh, after office. Uh, I had uh, police protection for 13 and a half years. Uh, and uh, it uh, does things to you. Colin, where exactly are we going? I asked United States Secretary of State Colin Powell as he and I walked briskly along the corridors of the United Nations building, down the escalator, and into the bright sunlight on First Avenue during a lull in the 2004 United Nations General Assembly week. I haven't a clue, said Colian. I'm following that guy with a thing in his ear. He's one of yours, isn't he? What are you doing, Jack? I'm following the same guy with a thing in his ear. Where are you taking us? I asked the British detectives we were both following. We thought you and Secretary Powell knew, sir, so we're gesturing to the other 10 security guys who'd surrounded us, sort of following you uh, from the front, sir. <laughs> you were both due at the Security Council family photo, but you marched out with such purpose, we all thought you knew where you were going. <laughs> Not a chance, I muttered. I've been completely de-skilled. For 30 and a half years, I was a principal in the care of a squad of close protection officers. They were professional, discreet, good-humoured, and they kept my family and me safe, which was the point. But it was a very odd existence. This was not some special chauffeur service to turn off and on at a whim. I could never go out of the house without a police officer walking alongside me, or if I was in company, a few paces behind. The only exception was when Alice and I went for walks in the countryside, though we always had to spell out our route in advance and take a police radio with us. One other reason why the transition from government to opposition was easier for me was that I still had protection for three months after the election. It finished the day after our daughter Charlotte's wedding on the last day of July 2010. Those three months gave me the time to reorientate myself into the real world. For 13 years, I'd not been on a bus. I travelled on the tube only to the occasional Blackburn Rovers away game. 
I hadn't owned a car and I'd barely driven one. I'm an incorrigible jaywalker with only one ear that works. For 13 years, I had a bloke who could hear with a thing in his ear to tell me when it was safe to cross the road. Now I was off the lead on my own. I bought a car. The next thing was driving the thing. On a couple of trips to and from Blackburn, one of the detectives with advanced driving qualifications came with me. For the next trip, the detectives went in their car behind, and a friend who wanted to see Blackburn took a police radio and sat uh, alongside me. We did fine until the M42. I sailed past the slip road and was on the way to Worcester. Uh, next exit, boss, into the service station, came the instruction over the police radio. We can turn round there. You need a break anyway. As we four were munching our paninis in the service station, a man in a suit made a beeline for me. Black saloon car, sir. I think you'll find it's just rolled down the car park and into another vehicle. <laughs> there we found my nice shiny saloon nestling into the rear bumper of a large Vauxhall. It's two occupants, Australian tourists who just spent 24 hours on their flight here, looked incredulous that there could be drivers that stupid. Especially as this particular stupid driver had two plainclothes police with, policemen with him, a source of further incredulity. Happily, no damage was done. I made a groveling apology, exchanged details, and was then given very strict instructions about the importance of applying the handbrake properly. You're not in the back of one of our cars anymore, sir. Ah, but I thought I still was. For I was dozing gently, half awake, half in another world. I felt for the seatbelt. It wasn't in its usual position. I guessed it was time for the archers. So I'd asked the detective in front of me to turn on Radio 4, as he was almost programmed to do. Luckily, I stirred from my torpor just in time. I was no longer in the rear seat of a police vehicle. The man in front was not a detective, but a fellow passenger on the 159 bus. At least that day, it was the 159. A week later, I was sat on the bus congratulating myself on my new find bus riding skills. I looked out of the window in a smug sort of way. The street didn't look quite right. Whichever bus it was, it wasn't the 159. It did have a one in its number, uh, but I discovered that with buses, there's no room for even minor er errors. <laughs> and the 133 doesn't go to the Palace of Westminster. A nice disembodied lady told me that the next stop was the Kennington Underground Station. I jumped off, unfortunately, made my uh, appointment in time. The errors continued for some months. Avril, can you tell me where the nearest tube station is, please? I asked a, a friend as we were leaving uh, a party for The Economist newspaper in late September. She led me to the tube station. I spotted an escalator and was heading down it when Avril caught up with me. No, Jack, this isn't the way for you. This is the Piccadilly line to Heathrow. You live on the northern line, going south. Uh, this way. <laughs> Two years on, I've just about managed it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much. There's a lot in the book which is sort of background stuff, and I want to start with what I've labeled some surprising facts. Firstly, I suppose to say I like the story about the uh, Deputy Chief Whip, Walter Harrison, who 
died fairly recently. I imagine Andrew Mitchell would have liked to have had that kind of power <laughs> over certain members of the press <laughs> and the police, perhaps, on the front gate of Downing Street. Uh, surprising facts. Um, not many politicians would own up to having a fetish, but there it is, page 378. Do you want to tell us more? Page 378. Which, which fetish? <laughs> oh, there's so many. Okay, I'll, I'll give you a clue. Which, which, it's about cleaning your shoes. Oh, shoe cleaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not quite as exciting as no, no. it uh, I, was built. I, I, uh, I, I believe in clean shoes. I think it's a... Uh, a as does Tony Blair. As does Tony Blair. I think it's a test of character. Um, and um, Tony Blair, Neil Kinnock, and I uh, may sh be share uh, other uh, fetishes, but we certainly share an interest in clean shoes. And what I discovered from reading Alan Bullock's great biography of Ernie Bevin, the great um, trade unionist uh, and Labour foreign secretary after the war, was that he too had a shoe, clean shoe fetish. Uh, and when he was Minister of Labour in, in the war, Churchill had spotted that he was cleaning his own shoes. Uh, and Churchill said to him, uh, I think he sent him a note saying, we will get you a Batman, <laughs> a Bevin. Uh, you can't possibly clean your own shoes. Uh, but Bevin said no, he would carry on cleaning his own shoes. And there's also a passage in the, in the book, uh, Jerry, about how during a negotiation on what became uh, Resolution 1441, I had to go and uh, see Tony, um, because he hadn't quite got his lines right with George Bush. Uh, did he ever? Uh, no, he, he did. We had, to, we had to get him to make the call again, because I've, I've been listening to it. But he was sat in the middle of this large bed in the hotel in uh, Blackpool, I think it was, in a pair of uh, shorts, just a pair of shorts, but with a huge bag of shoe cleaning equipment, uh, <laughs> cleaning, cleaning his shoes. Good. Um, there's lots of photographs, uh, some interesting ones. My favourite one is actually uh, of you with um, a guy called Lance Armstrong when you were <laughs> riding in the hills. And the quote is ascribed to your wife, Alice, who's here. It says, his greatest high. Uh, would you like to explain more how you got your greatest high riding on a bike with Lance Armstrong? Yeah, I, I should just explain that the news about Lance Armstrong's uh, infelicities uh, came through as the book was going to press. Uh, but... <laughs> the, Photographic plates were done, uh, so that was that. However, uh, what I say in mitigation is as follows. Uh, Alice and I were at a conference in Aspen, Colorado, and one of the recreational things you could do, uh, we, you, could, you could go and play tennis or with a, uh, a, a tennis pro or golf with a golf pro, or you could go cycling up a mountain with Lance Armstrong and Trek, who was sponsored, uh, Lance Armstrong with their, with their carbon fibre bikes, and I'm a cyclist. So I thought I'd go on this, and it was terrific. I leave aside um, the disgraceful conduct that has now emerged. So I suppose it's about 10 miles up um, the mountain. Um, and of 20, this is a total boast, by the way, but I was really pleased about this. Of 20 who started, only five finished in the, in the pack, and I was one of them, and I think I was about 20 years older than the rest. So uh, I, I then left these guys, these professional cyclists, to cycle down. I mean, they were going at astonishing speeds, uh, but I left them to it. But Alice, who is here, said when I got back that she'd, she'd never seen me before or since on such a high. So there we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the other uh, facts which I didn't know about, actually, was we had the Bishop of Durham chairing the previous session with Gavin Esler, um, the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, but 1989 was a significant year for you in terms of your religious faith. 
when you actually became confirmed in the Church of England. Yes. What was it that happened in 1989 to bring you back into the fold, if you well, like? Well, I, I'd never really left the fold. Um, my parents were Congregationalists, but they fell out, um, not least because the Congregational Minister decided to go to court on my father's side to fight the separation order that my mother was seeking. That's what happened 50 years ago. Um, I then went to a school which was Anglican. I went, I sang in the church, in the chapel choir, so I was sang in chapel seven days a week for seven years. And I sort of, but I decided at, at school not to get confirmed. And then sort of drifted in and out of agnosticism, never atheism. And then in the 80s, I you know, started thinking about uh, uh, a good bit more. It's an entirely private matter. I didn't want any publicity for it whatsoever. Um, but finally decided that I would like to get confirmed and ask the chaplain in the House of Commons if he'd instruct me, which he duly did. And we had a very nice ceremony uh, with um, a bishop called Bishop Jim Thompson, who I, at that stage I think was Bishop of Truro, who we knew a bit, who confirmed me in the crypt Did you ever have discussions with Tony Blair on matters of faith? Because I think his faith was pretty fundamental to his approach no, to politics. It, yes, not really. I mean, I think... I think I mean, Tony's faith was more public than mine. I mean, I, it's, not, it's not been a secret that I'm a churchgoer, but I never... I, I, always, I, th I think you have to be very, very careful not to... Uh, we don't know, do God, as God. Alistair Campbell's. Yeah, said. well, we don't do... I mean, Alistair Campbell certainly doesn't do God, but that's... But, uh, <laughs> God doesn't even do Alistair Campbell. No, no, but <laughs> the only thing you need to know about Alistair Campbell is he supports Burnley. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, We're going into uh, Lancashire uh, territory uh, now, so... Everything else falls into place. Uh, <laughs> the... the um, but... Uh, but Given a choice between the way that American politics works, where people wear their, their faith on their sleeves, and the way British politics work, where these days people's faith is a private matter, I choose British politics any time. Um, and after all, there have been periods, and still are, t t in some, some parts of Northern Ireland and, and west of Scotland, where confessional divides are still visible. So I think we're better off where we are. I didn't. I mean, I occasionally had conversations with Tony, but not about that, but not very much. We'll, we'll come on to the main yeah. politics. I'm just staying on one or two uh, personal facts which came out before we get to the hard politics yeah. as such. You do say also um, that you spent about 10 years in the 1980s in therapy. I mean, given the state of the Labour Party at the time, people might say that was a very wise decision. It but was, uh. <laughs> it, but, but it, it, it was a moment of crisis. Uh, people may not know that uh, Jack lost his hearing in his right ear in 1981. Uh, and that seemed to trigger a sort yes. of deep yeah. moment that you felt you had to go and seek outside help. Yeah. Well, what happened was the the yeah just one weekend I got what I thought were symptoms of the flu, couldn't hear properly. And it then emerged that uh, I mean after misdiagnosed for three weeks that I'd lost my hearing completely, totally, um, and the, this virus had drilled away at my cochlea in a part of the ear, and had replaced my hearing with uh, tinnitus, which indeed I still have. Um, and that was, I mean, it was, I've got used to it, the whole thing, but it was incredibly disorientating. I mean, really, really, because I had bangs and whistles going on here and I couldn't hear properly. And, I was, and the, <laughs> the consultant very cheerfully said to me, well, he said about 500 people a year, Mr. Straw, get this uh, virus, and they lose the hearing in both ears. He said with a sort of smile on his face, and I thought, thank you very much. Uh, so, so I had to have lip-reading lessons in case I lost the hearing in the other ear. So it was very traumatic. Um, and then, meanwhile, the Labour Party was trying to kill itself. I mean, really working extremely hard on trying to kill itself. And all sorts of other problems, which I'd kept submerged as a kid, 
um, suddenly bubbled up because I, you know, because of this very unpleasant breakup of my parents' marriage, I'd, I got a boarding scholarship from a council estate to a, a, a boarding school. Had run away three times and then got beaten for this, and I, so I then decided the only thing to do with, with feelings was to close them down, and so all this popped up, and it was Alice's. Um, Mother, who didn't entirely approve of me, yes. um, for other, other, well, because I was quotes a socialist and uh, wrong side of the tracks and all the rest of it. Uh, but she said she thought it'd be a good idea if I'd, I did go and uh, talk to a psychoanalyst. So I started um, very reluctantly at first and tried. To, I did the politician's thing with him to begin with, which was to try and get him to talk about himself. Well, of course, he <laughs> 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 um, <coughs> these people are trained about that. Mm. So it was very, very long periods of silence as you sat there refusing to answer the questions. Really, <laughs> really aggravating. And then after a while, I, I got the point. I mean, I, after a while, I was paying for this as well. Uh, <laughs> and um, I, I carried on seeing him for quite a period uh, and, and still occasionally see him. Um, it was also interesting that you actually got voice training uh, yes. quite late on because yes. you had done 10, 11 years on yeah. the shadow front yeah. bench. Yeah. But there was a, a particular debate, which I remember actually, when yeah. uh, Tony Blair intervened that's right. on you, and yeah. that sort of shot your confidence. You yeah, felt no, that I'd do something I, about this. I, I, uh, I screwed up uh, in a debate. This was about Derek Lewis, Derek Lewis, who had been the Director General of the Prison Service. It was um, a famous, sorry, just to say, it was yeah. a famous interview where Michael Howard was the Home Secretary and Jeremy Paxman asked yeah. him the same question 14, 14 times. times. Did you threaten to yeah. overrule him? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. So that was the debate and, he was referring and, to. And what, the, the trick in opposition, if you've got a, a problem like that is to let it let it grumble on as uh, for example Ed Miliband wisely uh, did with the uh, the Andrew Mitchell case you don't suddenly have a debate and bring it to a head you just let these things grumble on but we got very excited about the Derek Lewis business because he was Lewis was complaining about the way he'd been sacked by Michael Howard and we called an opposition day debate three-hour debate I was promised I mean I should have resisted it, it was my fault but I was promised lots of detailed official records, confidential records, which weren't forthcoming. But it, so I didn't have the material, but in addition to that, I hadn't properly thought through what this debate was going to be like. Anyway, um, so I did badly. Uh, Tony intervened, which was slightly humiliating, and I felt as I'd sort of had it. I mean, Tony, to his very great credit, was fantastically supportive. Um, but it was Giles Radici... Uh, who's yes. a member for... Uh, Durham North West... Chesterley Street. Yeah. Who, who a, a constituent of his, had written to him, said, this man's straw has got a glottal stop, which I didn't know what that was then, I do now, uh, and he should have voice training. So I thought, it sounds pretty weird, but on the other hand, going to see a shrink seemed to help me, so I'll, I'll yes. go and have some voice training. So, uh, and, I, and it's a very, very sensible thing to do. Before we turn it fully into, into psychiatrist chair, we've covered that sort of territory. <laughs> Two things which, uh, again, surprised me was you're a pretty handy DIY person because you worked for your brother, your uncles, yeah. uh, so you, you can actually fix a plumbing system. Yeah, yeah. And also, you're a bit of a maths nerd, so much so that you're a fellow of the Royal Statistical Society. Yeah, well, well the, 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 uh, on the plumbing, my um, three of my uncles uh, were plumbers and I had this firm. Indeed, my youngest uncle who set the firm up is still in the business aged 81 uh, running this firm but so the second chapter is called uh, boaters and boiler suits so during the school t 
term, I wore a boater. Uh, and in the holiday, I went to work for my uncles in a boiler suit. Um, but I got pretty handy, uh, so I can sweat a joint and uh, all sorts. We're back to Lance Armstrong again, are we? <laughs> <laughs> um, solder a joint. Uh, and I've got a very good uh, set of tools. Um, and we've, I've s- saved ourselves a lot of money, but also on two or three occasions turned up with friends and they got some plumbing situation <laughs> <laughs> with water, which I've been able to resolve. On the maths, Jerry, I'm, I'm, I'm a frustrated mathematician. I, I actually formally stopped maths when I was uh, at, uh, at uh, O-level, but I have a great interest in numbers. Um, but I, the Royal Statistical Society made me a fellow because of the work I did to put uh, the operation of our national statistical system on an independent basis. It's something which I feel... Uh, very passionately about. Um, and the last thing we've got to do on this, by the way, um, and I, in case anybody asks, I felt this as a minister, is to stop ministers, including prime ministers, having any notice at all about official statistics. Um, it, it was brought down from th- a week to a few days. I think it's 24 hours now. But it, you, if you're a my David Cameron will disagree, George Osborne will, I think Gordon Brown would disagree. But you actually end up in a false position if you can have access to this information before the markets and before the public. Why not just find out about it at the same time as everybody else? Then no one can accuse you of fiddling the figures, and you're, you know, you are, and these are independent. So. And it was a good example this week where, yeah. at Prime Minister's question, yeah. it was suggested that David Cameron, who would have seen the growth yeah, figures coming right. out on Thursday, right. dropped a fairly broad hint that, that yeah. the news was yeah. going to be good, and it was feeling it crossed the line. Okay, let's get on to some of the um, party leaders that you've worked yes. for. Yeah. Um, starting with uh, John Smith, um, you had a pretty, pretty big bust-up with John Smith over Clause 4, interestingly, which is what Tony Blair famously yes. yeah. ditched, but you were ahead of the game there. Well... I mean, Tony was supporting me in this, but Tony was part of uh, John's group. Um, anyway, Clause 4, written the month of the October Re- Russian Revolution in 1917, um, committee of the parties, every party of my antiquity, uh, party member of my antiquity knows, uh, to secure for the workers by hand or by brain the full fruits of their industry and the most equitable distribution uh, thereof by means of the common ownership of the, me- of the means of production, distribution and exchange. Amen. Um, and... And it was internationalized, put in, taken to public ownership, everything. It was so we were committed to that. Um, we never ever implemented it. We, with the f- nearest we got was the nationalization of utilities after the war. Um, but the position we were in uh, by uh, 1992 was that the Berlin Wall had collapsed. Along with the collapse of the Berlin Wall was a collapse of that alternative economic system. And everybody was accepting that we lived in a, an era of capitalism and the issue was whether markets were your servants or masters. So we, and there wasn't anybody in the Labour Party defending Clause 4. I felt, however, that we had to change our formal objects. You couldn't have this as, a, as, as the creed if we didn't believe in it. Um, Neil Kinnock believed that strongly. So in private did John, but here was the problem. Cut a very long story short, I, with the full backing of my local party in Blackburn, I wrote a pamphlet, did the history on Clause 4, uh, and the history showed that actually the people who wrote Clause 4 didn't believe in it either. Uh, 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 <laughs> they were not great left-wingers. There were people like Sidney and Beatrice Webb and Arthur Henderson. From Newcastle. From, 
indeed. Well, it makes my point. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and and um, they believe it in either. So I drafted a, this pamphlet, uh, sent it to John Smith. He phoned me up uh, and said he didn't agree with Clause 4 either, but I wasn't to do this. It would stir things up, uh, and I would lose my position in the shadow cabinet if I did uh, go ahead. I disagreed with him. I got the pamphlet into proper order, went to see him at the beginning of 1993, uh, and he spent an hour shouting at me. Um, and at the end of it, uh, he picked up the pamphlet in his envelope and he chucked it at me uh, and, and uh, told me that I'd lose my seat in the shadow cabinet. And you also in the book, which is well known in Westminster, and this is why I want to move on yeah. also to another leader who was prone to shouting at people, and that's Gordon Brown. It was known in Westminster that John Smith liked to drink. Yes. But, of course, nobody would say that publicly. Sure. But you felt the combination of his temper, his judgment, and his drink wasn't the right or healthy combination. It wasn't. And what's interesting on this, and I mean, I have had some criticism for this, but I really thought very carefully ab about this. And I've, after all, sat on this for 18 years, but it's quite an important part of the history uh, that he was a man who was dependent on drink. Now, interesting enough, Jerry... Um, there is a hint of that in Alistair Darling's excellent book, um, Back from the Brink. But there's a whole paragraph, a long paragraph in Tony Blair's book, mm. uh, in, in which Tony describes uh, John Smith as a, quotes, gargantuan toper, uh, and a man who would have got uh, an Olympic gold medal for drinking. Tony then adds this caveat that he was never uh, in drink when he needed to be sober. And I just pay off my description by saying I don't think anybody that dependent on drink, can decide when, mm. the, uh, to be, when they need to be sober. They can't. Um, so, that, and I, so John had very many attributes. He was very good at, at opposition. But he, he, but he was a very curious mixture because he had great inner confidence, but he lacked political courage, and he lacked the ability, which Tony had, and actually Neil Kinnock did too, to see over the horizon and take members to places they didn't know they had to go. It's 1.34. I want to spend sure. about six minutes or so on uh, Gordon Brown, or perhaps less, and then open it up, because uh, in terms of Tony Blair, I'm sure being uh, the MP for Sedgefield, the present uh, member of Sedgefield here, and the whole Iraq situation may well be something you want to follow. Um, you ran Tony Blair's campaign. Let's leave that to one side. Yes. But perhaps more surprisingly, you ran Gordon Brown's campaign for leader. Um, at a time when talking to people who lost their temper, who were bad with dealing with their colleagues, and yet you persuaded reluctant members of the Labour Party to almost force sign his nomination papers, because he wanted everybody in the world to sign his nomination papers. So it was a faith complete. Were you dishonest with the public in terms of your assessment of his ability to do the job of Prime Minister? No, I, I was mistaken in my uh, judgment. I wasn't dishonest with them, because... The, the, that was the, the view I had come to, or, as it were, persuaded myself of coming to uh, at, at the time, and, and because of not, not Iraq, but of, of uh, other issues, uh, particularly Iran and the Middle East, Tony and I had had a sort of parting of the ways. I mean, Tony was extremely generous about me in his book uh, and says that the decision to move me was quite... His decision was quite plain stupid. Um, but it, it was a very, very difficult... Uh, period, and we, we then had almost public argument over his 
uh, support for the Israeli government. Um, but if we, if we just but, say on, but, on so, Gordon so, Brown, so, yeah. so, so I'm just trying to explain, Jerry. Okay. That there was so we were there was quite a big gulf opened up between us. As I bring out in the book, Gordon never behaved badly to me. Um, so. But there's a long list of people that he did behave no, very no, badly no, sure. and damaged them and damaged the party, no, as I you admit. And I accept that. So, um, I mean, on, on the issue of he wanted, a, uh, as it were, a slam dunk unanimity, having, I knew why he was asking me to be his campaign manager, and this wasn't out of sort of bosom friendship, but as it were, strictly business. Um, but I agreed to do it, and I did the job, and others um, with me did the job. And I've been... People say we, there should have been a contest. It would have been a rather uneven one because he was bound to win. And I've never met any politician who's actively sought uh, a contested election if they could, if they could get But uh, I want to take you on, if so, I can, from yeah. 2007. So sure. he wins. Yeah. We have the botched election that wasn't. Yes. Pretty soon, people realised at the senior level of the party and in the cabinet that he wasn't capable of making decisions. Yes. And yet you still and everybody else in the cabinet went around the country in 2010 trying to persuade the public that Gordon Brown was the right man to lead the country, despite the fact you had had detailed conversations with people like Charles Clark, David Miliband, uh, Stephen Byers, that he wasn't up to the job. Wasn't that a falsehood to be going during it the election? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't a falsehood, but, but, but look, this, this was the problem. Yes, our confidence in Gordon's ability to be a prime minister was gravely weakened, and it was weakened quite quickly. Not in actually in his economic ability, just in his ability to, to lead as, as prime ministers. However, all of us who had these discussions, and it was principally Alistair Darling, Alan Johnson, uh, Harriet Harman, uh, me, David Miliband, um, wished that there was a means by which we could get another leader, but did not know how to do that. And or lacked or, the courage to force the issue. Well, you could call it lacking courage, but we'd all been through the period of the Labour Party when the Labour Party had been wrecked by other people's egos. Uh, and so, I mean, that's, that's, that, that's the other side of this. That, uh, and I, I, you know, people say, why don't you, just, you, you do it? We knew how to get to the point where we had, as it were, slaughtered Gordon. That was the easy bit. We didn't know what was then going to happen and whether we would then be uh, looking at a wreckage of the Labour Party uh, and internecine struggle. So that, yes, we could justly be criticised by being ready to wound but afraid to strike. But that was the reason why we, we backed away. OK, that's pretty clear. Right, we've got about 22 minutes to go. And so we haven't spoken about Tony Blair, so if there isn't a question about your relationship with him, I'll follow up. But uh, can we have uh, the first few questions? And we'll try and get through as many as we can. Up on the front, a uh, gentleman has got his hand here. And the second question is also going to be third row up from the front, actually, over here. Yeah. Uh, if you could say who you are, sir, perhaps. If you could yes, just say um, your name. Yeah. My name is Gawain Robson. I live here in Durham City. Controversially, I think, at least in the circles I move in, I hold a view that uh, is very much in the minority, but I would welcome your comment on uh, my view that, um, that, uh, <laughs> that Neil Kinnock uh, is um, one of the best prime ministers the country never had. Yep. Um, I agree with that, I, it's, and I say that in the book. Um, Neil um, was a, a great leader, uh, and he, he led the Labour Party through some incredibly difficult periods. Uh, and I hope believe that Neil's 
verdicts in hist from hist historians in the future will be much more benign towards Neil. I mean, he, he completely committed to the Labour Party, was put through the most terrible pressures during the period that we remember, uh, and has remained loyal to the Labour Party ever since. And he was the man, as Tony's often conceded, who provided the platform on which Tony built. Okay, uh, gentlemen here, uh, just towards the front row, and could we have the next person uh, midway down, a gentleman there, so we'll take this. Okay. All right, sir. Uh, Roy Todd, you explained in the book the occasion when the tabloid press stitched up your son. Yes. Since then, we've had um, the hacking scandal, we've had Leveson. Yeah. We all want a free press, but I personally, and think most people don't want a free gutter press. Two questions. Do you think Leveson can come up with um, a format that would satisfy that? And secondly, is there any chance the coalition government, bearing in mind there'll be a general election in 2015, implement their, uh, their recommendations? Okay. Um, I, I'm quite sure Lord Justice Leveson will come up with some sensible proposals. Uh, and the process which he's run has been admirable, in my view. He's, he's a, uh, a judge of the highest quality. Uh, and I have no, no idea what he's going to propose, but I suspect that it will be to have some kind of overarching statutory authority within which a degree of self-regulation can operate. Uh, and that is not state regulation of the press, by the way. It's what other, other sensible countries can do to, to stop. This is not about restricting press freedom. We have a very free press. This is about restricting the, the press from making totally unwarranted intrusions into other people's lives or telling lies about people with impunity. Will the coalition government do it? I don't know. There have been some... I think the Liberals will want to, to be with us on this. There have been some very worrying um, mutterings from some Conservatives uh, that they simply want to go back to the bad old days. But we'll see. Just one point, which isn't in the book, actually, but did come out as part of the Leveson process, was the fact that you used to have quite cosy chats on, in a first-class carriage, by the way, with <laughs> Rebecca Brooks uh, on a Monday morning, I did. where you shoot the breeze a little bit about what was going on. <laughs> did you get too close to The Sun and News International personally? Never mind uh, the entire new Labour? I, I... Well, I... To a degree, we, we did. I mean, the difficulty is, this is about, was about power. Uh, and the News International had power. If you're a politician, a senior politician, you want to get uh, newspapers on side, it's better to have reasonable relationships with them than not. I have to say, Jerry, in my own defence, that yes, of course, I, uh, Rebecca Brooks and I happen to be sharing the same journey uh, on a Monday morning, so why not talk to her as, as, as insult her? Um, I, was, I think one of the reasons I survived as a politician was never getting too close, never getting personal uh, with uh, newspaper editors not having them around to our house and stuff like that. No text messages that we should uh, know no, about. No LOL text messages. <laughs> <laughs> right, the gentleman here, and then if there's another one, perhaps we still haven't had a, a female voice. Not, okay, well, gentlemen. Um, given that um, shoplifters and MPs have been prosecuted and imprisoned, what chance is there that those running the financial institutions that have caused the present financial crisis may be brought to justice? First part of the question. The second part of the question is, since I 
get a feeling that probably they won't be brought to justice. Has something changed in society that nowadays we are unlikely to take the law into our own hands? And I'm thinking back to we don't expect Angry Brigade Mark II to okay. materialise okay. overnight. Yeah. All right. Right. Um, not, I mean, I, I just don't know whether, whether those who, who committed very serious offences um, and helped to bring down the financial system will be brought uh, to justice. I mean, some, a handful are already. Um, will the people who really caused the mayhem be brought to justice? I doubt it. And it's, so, however, what we are seeing now is a cleaning up of the financial system. I mean, it wasn't clean before. It wasn't clean 30, 40 years ago. 30, 40 years ago, the city made money out of insider trading because it was lawful. You know, that's what you paid a stockbroker for, was to get secrets which other people didn't have. Um, so the system is gradually being uh, cleaned up. Will, people, will there be urban terrorism like the Angry Brigade? Well, I hope, obviously, I hope not very much. I mean, there's a separate issue of Islamist terrorism, but that is, that is no answer. No, I know what you're talking about, and I remember sure. it. Uh, but I, I, anyway, I... Uh, maybe Occupy was the closest we, yeah, we came to. Yeah. Uh, the gentleman here and then the lady just uh, in the same row. So the gentleman over there in the second row, just, and then the, the lady in the same row. Yes. Just on the subject of free speech, some people believe now that political correctness has gone so far that free speech no longer exists in this country and that parliamentarians take tolerance so far that they're now racist against their own people, meaning white British people. What are your views on those okay. sort of issues? Well, I, I, um, I, I mean, I'm not regarded, least of all by my family, as politically correct. And I certainly think that if there's an issue to be talked about, then it should be talked about. And, for example, in my own uh, constituency, as I bring out in the book, well, I, this went around the world, because I was concerned about the effects of women who wore or wear the full veil, I was willing to talk about it. Um, I wasn't saying... It should be banned. I was saying, which it is, it was a barrier to communication. And equally on this issue of um, gangs who were being predatory towards young white girls. I mean, sexual offences know no uh, sort of colour, but there is a particular problem of uh, Asian gangs grooming white girls. So I'm willing to, to, to talk about that. I think we should, um, because it is... Has, is a specific problem for a specific community. Do I want to go back to the society I remember when uh, I was a kid, when that you could walk down the street in London and see signs in windows, boarding houses saying, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs? Do I want to go back to a, a situation, my initials are JWS, I've got a bit of Jewish blood in me, where people felt free to put an E between the J and the W, Jew straw, um, no, I don't. And I, th and I think you, you, that, that you, you do need quite strong laws against that. Do I want to go back to a time where people who happen to be gay uh, are called all the nasty things that people were called uh, because they happen to, uh, to be gay or lesbian? Uh, or people who are disabled were called spastics and laughed at? So this is about how... There, there's political correctness, which is about denying people proper debate, an area of debate, on the one hand, which I'm not in favour of, there's the kind of words we ought to think about, because words have great power, when we are relating to each other, where I think 
uh, I don't call it political correctness, I just call it treating people with dignity, where, you, where we have got to really think about the lexicon, the words uh, that we use if oh. we want to have a tolerant society. Okay, uh, the lady here in the second row, please. Do you think we have the right Miliband brother as leader of the Labour Party? <laughs> <laughs> well, the BBC seems to keep getting them mixed up, don't they? Every time they go to air, they call him David and vice versa. Uh, you voted for, I voted for, for, David. for David, but then you yeah. now say... Well, I, look, I've, I've, I voted for David. That's no secret, perfectly public. I supported him. I thought he was the right Miliband, uh, and I wish that he'd been elected, for sure. Um, I was worried about his younger brother, Ed, getting the job, because I thought he wasn't ready for it. Um, like many other people, I've been pleasantly surprised uh, that he, uh, I think, is able to do the job. I can't answer the question, none of us can, is where would the Labour Party be were David, uh, uh, had David been in post for two and a half years? But, um, but I think Ed's doing okay. He's doing okay. Right, uh, the lady behind, just because the mic is close by, and then we'll go down towards the gentleman uh, about five or six rows down, yeah. So, lady, please. Hi, um, I've actually got two questions, if that's okay. First of all, what do you think the legacy of New Labour will be? Um, and secondly, uh, which foreign politician have you enjoyed working with the most and why? Okay, legacy of New Labour um, made our society much better. We did good things on the economy. We transformed education. One in three kids were getting five or more GCSEs in my constituency in 1997. It's now three in four. Um, if I'd gone around talking in Blackburn about having a university centre in Blackburn in 1997, people would have thought I'd start staring mad. We've got a university centre. It's doing really good work. And there are kids now in the worst, you know, the most deprived areas of Blackburn who talk about going to uni and they're, and they're going there. We've transformed the health service. By God, we've, we've transformed the railways. I mean, amazingly. I mean, twice as many people are now tra travelling on the railways uh, as travelled on, on the railways 20 years ago. And that was principally because of us. Most importantly of all, going back to the previous question, we've transformed the way we relate to each other. Part of my book, one of the themes of my book, is how disgustingly people treated those who were gay, or gay particularly. And I... I mean, I had one of the biggest fights on my hand as Home Secretary to bring the age of consent down to 16 to see the abolition of Section 28, all right? Now, I'm very pleased the Conservative Party's changed its mind on all this stuff uh, since then, to get race relations legislation in, to get legislation against religious uh, abuse and intolerance. It's those things, didn't cost any money, which are about uh, the ethical attitudes we have towards each other, which have also, I think, made a major difference in and the nature the, of us. And your favourite foreign politician to work alongside or with? Two of them, um, uh, Colin Powell and, uh, or Joska Fischer, um, both great people. Colin, uh, we're still a very close friend of, uh, of Alice and, and me. Um, Alice continues to call him the other man in her life because uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he always used to phone at 11 o'clock at night. Uh, Joska Fischer, a terrific guy, um, who uh, first came to the United Kingdom aged 18 when he eloped. Uh, went to, to, to marry a girl uh, in Gretna Green and forever was complaining to me about uh, and blaming me for British cuisine on the basis <laughs> of the food he'd had to put up with in the Carlisle uh, Woolworths Cafe in, in 1966. <laughs> Just one other point on, uh, on Fisher, actually, was the leader of the Green Party yeah. and... Um, while he was deputy uh, vice-chancellor, uh, Schroeder was the chancellor. Yeah. Between them, they had nine marriages... So Fisher was quite yeah. often the other man they in was. the uh, relationship. I, as much I, as Do, Dominic de Villepin, 
Fischer and, who, and the three of us were, were good friends. And I was with Dominique in Fischer's room in the uh, foreign ministry in Berlin when one of Fischer's staff brought him in a, a, a glossy magazine. It's a bit like Hello. And on the front page, there was Joska with his latest girl. Uh, and, and Dominic and I started teasing Joska. Uh, How old's this one? He says, well, he, she's somewhere between 28 and 35, he says. I always have my wives aged between 28 and 35. <laughs> but they can manage it. They're apparently German politicians. Uh, and what's this with colon instead of Colin Powell? Well, I mean, what's his explanation for that? I don't know. Does that listen? I always want to know. Right, there was a, a gentleman here with the glasses and then a lady in the front. Where, uh, short questions and short answers Fine. from here, please. Gentlemen. You've talked about the difficulty in replacing Gordon Brown. Uh, defeat in 2010 eventually allowed you to do that. Um, sorry, did what? Sorry, I, you talked about the difficulty in replacing yes, Gordon yeah. Brown as leader. Yeah. Defeat in 2010 yes. allowed you to do that. Yeah. We ended up with the Conservatives in an uneasy coalition having to make some of the difficult choices yeah. that are having to be made. Would you concede that actually the result of the 2010 election was about the best thing that could have happened for Labour? <laughs> um, Very good question from my colleague in ITV, Tyne so I didn't recognise in the darkness there, but you can uh, see spot on. I... I De defeat never sounds like a, never feels like a a, a good idea. I, I, so no, I would have liked to have, us to have to have won. Um, did I think there was something pretty inevitable about us us losing in 2010? Yes. Uh, and as I explained the the book, you, there is a parties in government have a kind of rhythm to them, and we'd run out of we, we we'd run out of road. Uh, and every so often, you have to renew yourself. And, and democracy is about change, but it's not something I wish on my worst enemy. Okay, the lady here, who I think has a mic, hopefully. I was just about to get the mic just here, and then we could fit one or two more. Uh, yeah, and the, the gentleman with the beard will do the next one. So if we can move fairly quickly now, because it's, uh, we've got about six or seven minutes left. Um, please. Sarah Pierce, um, numbers in prisons are rising steadily to the extent they can't do their job effectively. 86,000 now, predicted to be 95,000 in 2017. Should we have more prisons at huge cost or fewer prisoners by adjusting sentencing policy? And we'll just chuck in, why are you so opposed to giving prisoners the votes? Okay, uh, right. <laughs> um, look, the, the, the number of people in prison is a, a reflection of the number of people who are, have committed serious crimes who then get sentenced to prison. So I think we should stop being obsessed about the numbers of people in prison. As it happens, uh, the prison population is rising, rising a lot less fast than was anticipated uh, four or five uh, years ago. And although we send to prison a few more per head of population than other countries in Europe, it's five times fewer than in the United States. And we have got crime down. And one of the reasons we've got crime down is because the, the, the bulk of the people who've gone to prison and are filling out the prisons are serious long-term criminals for whom everything else has failed. Um, sorry, your, the second question was... Oh, oh, oh about prisoner votes. Well, my, my view on prisoner votes is, is, is uh, very straightforward. That this, the issue of whether prisoners... I don't, I don't think that prisoners should have the vote. I think it's something you've, you should you forfeit... Uh, when you go to prison, you've lost your civic rights, you've failed to show respect for other people, whilst you're in prison, not, for, not forever. Um, but crucially, Jerry, that this is a decision that should be made by the British Parliament. It's, it's not an appropriate decision for uh, a European court in Strasbourg. Good. Uh, gentleman here, thank you. 
Hello, uh, Keith Parker. Was it worthwhile invading Iraq? Well, uh, we, got, we got a question. Was it worthwhile invading Iraq? Can I just paraphrase from, there's a very, very good chapter on this, as you would expect. You say that you could have stopped Britain's involvement, and then you explain why you didn't. Yes. Part of the problem seemed to be that you were talking to one section of the Bush administration, Colin Powell and Condi Rice, the rational section, if you like, and Tony Blair was talking, dealing mainly with George Bush and Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld, who you don't have much time for. Not George Bush, who you actually rate. Yes. So we haven't got a lot of time. Sure. Defend the invasion of Iraq. Well... <laughs> That's all we have time for. Refuse to defend it. Go ahead. No, I'm defending it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I invite you to, see the, to read the longer uh, explanation in the book. Was it the, did I, do I believe that, we, that I made the right decision at that time on the basis of the information we had available? Yes, I do. Uh, and I explain, seek to explain why. Um, would I have made that decision today in the light of what I now know? Well, obviously not. And would, if we had known at the time that Saddam, by all accounts, had managed to dispose of his uh, stock of uh, chemical and biological weapons, um, would we have been justified in going to war? No, the problem was we didn't know, and, and Saddam didn't want us to know. More controversially, is Iraq a better place uh, than it would have been under Saddam? I think so, is the answer, and, and, lot, and I give a lot of the numbers. It is a significantly better place, and much more democratic place. And it's interesting, although Iraq's got lots and lots of problems, it's one of the few countries in the Middle East where people have not been demonstrating in the streets arguing for democracy, because they've got the beginnings of a, of a democratic system, unlike some of the other countries. Very well done. But there is a very detailed chapter, as you would expect, on the whole decision-making process that went into... There's two, there's two actually. Two, yeah, yeah, sorry, two. Yeah. Uh, one last question from the audience. Is anybody going to volunteer to be the, the last voice from the floor? Or Yes, uh, there's a lady over here. Uh, if you could stand up, perhaps, so they can see you. Um, yeah, you've got the mic. Thank uh, you. I'm a bit nervous, but I just felt I wanted to say this to you. I was so pleased that you said that one of the things you were proud of most was your equalities legislation that, that was delivered while you were uh, in power. Because I worked in Durham working with a minority ethnic children for a long time, and I saw a huge, huge difference because of the legislation that you, you. made us deliver. It was hard. It was like watching, you know, kicking people being uh, dragged, kicking and uh, screaming into, understanding the, the importance of accepting people uh, uh, for their differences. And to see it happen, to see it change, and to listen to people now saying, you would never say that now. Or in the, in the old days, this is where, the, where, where people be, behave. But now, it's different. And I can remember when it was different. And you made that difference. Well, and thank you very much for that. Very nice positive note. Do you want to just respond <laughs> briefly? Uh, that, that's very, thank you very much, man, because, because um, the, uh, the brickbats in I politics... I didn't realise your wife was going to ask uh, the question, actually. But, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, no she, she would have asked... Him, where is Alice? She would have asked a much more crit critical question. But, but I, but, and the person, by the way, thank you very much for saying that. And I say in the book, the thing I'm proudest of is, was setting up the inquiry into Stephen Lawrence's murder and then making sure we followed through. The person who deserves the greatest credit for that was, was Stephen's mother, Doreen, quite extraordinary woman. Um, because I, I, it was she who just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing. I mean, she was pushing an open door with me, but made sure we got the inquiry, made sure it was on the right terms, 
and they'd made sure we implemented it. Um, a quite remarkable human being. That's a nice positive note to end on. Can I thank you all for your contribution? I hope you agree we've gone through a lot of territory. Um, Jack, or Johnny as his family call him, uh, <laughs> will be signing copies of his book just down on the left-hand side, uh, so feel free to go and buy uh, a signed copy of the book. Sadly, we didn't get, have a chance to get onto the subject of Mo Molum's knickers, but they're in here. Uh, so if you want to find out more, you've got to get Jack Straw, Last Man Standing. And to let Jack go down.